Thank you, Luke. Um, just want to add a, a couple of things to that. Um, yes, I am uh, married to my wife, Marissa. We'll be married 13 years uh, this December. She, I've known a little longer than Luke. She's my high school sweetheart. We got married at 19 right out of high school, but we actually grew up together. I've known her since we were seven. So she's not my high school sweetheart. She's my seven-year-old sweetheart. Played <laughs> t-ball together. She was atrocious, but boy, she looked good. And so um, I've uh, been blessed to know her, and she's the love of my life. We do have four kiddos. The seven and six-year-old are up here. The four-year-old is probably wreaking uh, just havoc downstairs. Uh, the one-year-old's Elijah. Um, and we thought about a year ago that it would be wise with th- four kids, six and under at the time, to get a puppy, an English cream golden retriever named Albus, Albus Dumbledog. And so we have been full. Life has been full. Um, I did grow up with Luke, as he mentioned. He's my best friend. His evangelism is what led me to the Lord. So, Great start. Um, So we named our thirdborn Luke after him. I've noticed that Luke has two boys and he has not returned the favor (laughs) thus far. He's a real jerk, but. I am recovering from knee surgery, so if you see me leaning on this right leg, that's the good one. I'm 12 days out from arthroscopic knee surgery, but God has been kind to bless me. The swelling's gone, and I can stand here and preach to you this morning. I love to read. I love to write. But above all these things, I love Jesus, and I greatly enjoy seeing him and studying him through the scriptures, and that is my hope for us this morning as we're looking at this wonderful passage in my favorite gospel, also Luke. Um, verses 40 through 56. But I want to begin with an exercise. I want you to think about an embarrassing moment in your life. An embarrassing moment. Go ahead and think about it. Even in thinking about it now, it it makes you squirm a little bit or blush. Maybe you're even getting a little angry with yourself. I cannot believe I said that or did that or whatever. It's a moment that brought shame. Maybe saying something stupid. Maybe it's a real sin that you committed. You, you, you blundered big time in the aftermath of that sin. Maybe it's making a big mistake in, in front of the eyes of other people. Maybe it's a bowel movement fiasco. That's one of the leading shame-causing um, events. But you know, something embarrassing. I want you to have it. I know some of you are finding it now because I'm seeing cheeks turn red. Uh, I'm seeing maybe you look at others around you because maybe someone you're sitting next to knows the moment you're thinking about. But I want you to hold on to that, that moment. Or maybe those moments, if you're like me, you've got a bunch of them. And I want you to soak in that feeling a little bit as you relive relive it, but I want you to put it aside because we're gonna come back to it in a few moments. But I want us to see from the outset here is Luke 8, verses 40 through 56, intends to teach us this morning that seeing Jesus' power over sickness and shame and death, ought to compel us to come to him. When we see, I'm going to say that again, when we see Jesus' power, his authority over sickness, shame, and death, we ought to to be blown away, to marvel at who he is, and that drive us to want him, to come to him. 
And it's one of Luke's themes. As you've probably been looking through Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's gospel is one of reversals, turning things upside down according to the world's standards. Uh, all, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do this, but Luke especially, the first is last, the last is first. The poor exalted, the rich made low. Those who weep, filled with tears, are comforted, the tears are wiped away. The outcast is brought near, the one who's near pushed away. The important one made an outsider, the outsider made a child. These themes and more we're going to continue in our passage because we're going to see like a little window, just a, a little picture of new creation starting in time. New creation is beginning as Jesus exercises his power and his authority over the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall that we're going to see this morning in this passage include sickness, shame, and death. And so that's why we're going to hone in on those ones. But I want us to explore in this passage the power of Jesus, the power that he has over sickness, over shame, and over death. But I don't want to just to stop there as a Bible study. I want us to see how when we recognize Jesus and his power over these things, we ought to be compelled to trust him all the more and to follow him. I hope to accomplish this this morning by breaking up the, the passage in three scenes, if you will, or three acts. The first is a man's request for help. The second, a sick woman's last try. And third, a dead girl raised. So scene one, a man's request for help. This is verses 40 through 42a, basically the first half of 42. It opens with this, this line, when Jesus returned. Presumably, he's returned to the region of Galilee from where he was previously, which you would have looked at maybe last week or the week before whenever you were in Luke last. That passage was when Jesus um, met the demon-oppressed demon man in the country of the Gerasenes, the story of Legion. And so he's returning from there across the Sea of Galilee, now back into the region known as Galilee. That's the, the region up north, far north from Jerusalem, where Jesus spends most of his time doing his teaching and, and preaching and his healing. And especially in Luke's gospel, the first third of it is spent up north in Galilee. But in just a chapter, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is going to set his face toward Jerusalem. And he sets off on a journey toward Jerusalem where he will die for us. And that large chunk of, of Luke's gospel, basically 10 and following, has a lot of material unique to Luke's gospel. It's, it's amazing. But right now we're way up north in Jesus' homeland where he, he grew up. And we meet Jairus. Jairus. We're told he's a leader of a synagogue. History tells us that the, the leader of a synagogue was off, often a layperson, a, a, a layman. Now, what is a synagogue, you might ask? Because if you've been reading the Old Testament, you don't see a synagogue. You know that there's temple, um, that people would have meditated on God's word day and night. What is a synagogue? Well, they, they pop up basically between the Testaments. Think like the close of, of the Old Testament with Malachi before Jesus comes. That little window there, synagogues pop up and are spread throughout the land. And uh, I'm probably going to risk being overly simplistic, but think of a synagogue as a church. They were little churches throughout towns and cities, and they became the center for worship. God's people would worship, increasingly so, at the synagogue. There's all kinds of reasons for that that we don't have time to get into. But the synagogue would have looked very similar to kind of what we're doing here today. The synagogue would have included prayer, scripture reading, 
a preaching, an exhortation, singing, which would have looked a lot more like chanting, but it was church. And the leader of the synagogue would have organized who prays, who teaches, who reads the scriptures, who's leading the chanting, and all of these things. Many times, the leader of the synagogue was a Pharisee, an important group of characters when it comes to Jesus' ministry, right? Jairus is probably well-respected, liked by everyone, but that's not why he's in our story, right? He is in great distress. His daughter is at the point of death, his only daughter. We as the reader were clued into the severity of the situation when he's described as falling at Jesus' feet. Jairus implored him to come to his house. I don't know about you, but I'm not the best at getting into a story. Like when I'm reading it myself, like really getting in and embodying the story, and when I'm teaching, I struggle sometimes to get my mind in because of the cultural difference. But I want us to try to put ourselves into the story. Moms, dads, you would do anything for your princess and your princes. The boys are great, but boys, there's something different. You know what I'm saying? About your little girl, your only girl. Think about the inner turmoil, the pain, and maybe for the first time, a little bit of hopefulness in Jairus. He's heard the rumors. This, this Jesus character, as he's coming through, he's doing amazing things. He might be my only hope. He might have the answer. And remember, he's a Pharisee. It's risky for him to come to the man who his group, the Pharisee group, is opposing. But he musters it up and says, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to Jesus. Will you help? Jesus agrees. But we have an interruption along the way. This is scene two, a sick woman's last try, beginning in verse 42 through 48. Jesus is traveling with Jairus through the streets of an ancient city, which was people crushing, if you will. It even says it. The the people literally pressed around Jesus, Luke tells us. And then Peter later says explicitly that. What do you mean who touched you, Jesus? Uh, The people are pressing around you. Underline that word, pressed around. It's the same word used earlier in the chapter, in the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four soils. For the thorny soil, what it does when the plant is coming up, it chokes out the plant. It's the same word. Jesus is walking along, being choked, pressed, everyone packed around him. It's constricting. It's tight. If you struggle with claustrophobia, you're getting anxious right now, thinking about this. And there we meet a woman who we're told has a discharge of blood for 12 years. Again, a very distressing situation, to say the least. Listen to these words. Uh, She had a uh, discharge of blood for 12 years. She spent all her living on physicians. Couldn't be healed by anyone. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much going on here that the original readers would have picked up on that we can miss if we're not careful. So remember the opening exercise? I want us to go back to our moment, our experience of embarrassment and shame. As a matter of fact, I know that the stories that came to my mind as I was putting this together do not compare with the experience of the woman. The shame that she knows, 
the shame that she's experiencing. Yours might, but I know mine doesn't. Because there were religious and social consequences to this woman's situation. This is what we can miss if we're not careful. Religiously, she is ceremonially unclean. You can read about it in Leviticus 15 and following. It's a good time. She's an outcast. She's not allowed in church. She can't be at the temple. And I can't overstate the importance of the temple where prayers are heard, where forgiveness of sin happens. It's where God lives on earth, where heaven and earth are touching in a place. You can't be there. What is she to do? But even more, socially, interacting with people, friends, she's not allowed to have contact with anyone. No touching. The introverts in the room say, amen, but I'm telling you, it'll kill you. That would kill you eventually. 12 years, no touch. In public, as she's going about, she has to declare her uncleanness as a courtesy to everyone around her. How about that? You have to go around announcing your shame to everyone around you so that no one gets close. Just so you know, blood, 12 years. Talk about the shame, embarrassment that she feels. Can you imagine? Touchless, outcast, alone, scorned, embarrassed, unable to go to church, 12 years. I don't even have a category. And even deeper than this, she's an image bearer of God. Part of this means that we were made for community. We were made for touch. We were made for family, for interaction. So I want you to imagine your moment. What was that moment of of shame, that shame event, that embarrassing experience, whether you put your foot in your mouth and said something foolish? That thing right now, as you think about it, your temperature is rising, cheeks beginning to blush. Maybe it was an event. You know the moment right now where you were, you can even smell it still, the area, I got it. Or... Maybe it's just an overarching reality, a series of unfortunate events. The truth of something you did, stuff you keep looking at and entertaining in your mind, the way you treated that person, or truly maybe it's just the way you are. You're bent toward anger, lust, jealousy, bitterness, fear, and you feel ashamed. Ed Welch, in his fantastic book, Shame Interrupted. The subtitle is How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. He defines shame in the opening pages this way and starts to put his finger on why shame is so tricky. He says, quote, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. I know that. Unacceptable. Because of something you did, something associated with you, or something done to you. And friends, we weren't created to be this way. Athanasius, 
He's in the fourth century. It's a long time ago. Fourth century, North African bishop. He's a church father. He was a defender of Trinitarianism against the heresy known as Arianism. You might know his work through what's called the Nicene Creed. He was there. The Athanasian Creed, that's him. Athanasius. He says that when we were created, a part of being image bearers of God is we were created to be people who were, quote, Godward in a freedom unembarrassed by shame. Naked and not ashamed. Our posture in creation was to be one that was Godward in a freedom from embarrassment. Freedom from shame. But because of chapter 3 of the Bible, page 3, because of the fall, we now are often bent in on ourselves very quickly seeing our weakness, our nakedness, our vulnerability. Shame's a part of the fall. But not only that, secondly, shame is tricky. Why is it tricky? Well, I don't know if you caught it in Ed Welch's definition there. Sometimes shame is connected to sin. I did something, I wronged someone, I am guilty of that thing, and I feel ashamed because I did it. But that's not all. Shame is deeply connected in a lot of ways of just living in a fallen world. Some of the things our bodies do. We are breaking down. Sometimes shame is associated with something done to you. You're innocent. You didn't do anything wrong in a moment. Someone else deeply hurt you. Maybe it's abuse. It's grotesque and wicked and evil what was done to you. And that thing, that event causes Shame, you say, I'm unacceptable, unlovely. And you feel exposed and humiliated. What's our solution? Look what the woman did in verse 43. <coughs> she spent all her living on physicians. She seeks to cover it, fix it, anything to fix this problem. It reminds me of that story in the garden. When Adam and Eve listened to the words of the serpent, when they chose to be their own God rather than listening to God, when they listened to the word of the serpent instead of the word of the Lord, what did they do? Hid, covered themselves. Shame, hiding, fig leaves, loincloth to hide, or with the woman spending everything on physicians. How do you deal with your shame? <clears throat> How do you cover? Maybe it's your success. I deal much better with my shame if I'm really successful. Looking good before others. Whatever those events in your life are that bring you shame, embarrassment, you can usually cope a little better if everybody else thinks you're pretty solid. Maybe it's your humor. Well, bait and switch with humor, you can hide by always being the, the funny one. Use of substances, alcohol or other. Control. If I can just control everything, I don't have to think about my shame, my embarrassment. Obsession with fitness, health, cosmetics, and looks. Money. <coughs> Excuse me. Anybody else getting wrecked by the hot, cold, hot stuff going on? 
forgive me. The good news, friends, says Christ knows our shame. And he's made an end of it if we let him. Christ knows our shames. God is gracious enough for our shame. Jesus knows it. The only one who did not deserve to be killed on a cross and judged by God died a criminal's death naked on a cross, what we would call a shameful death, an embarrassing death. The only one who ever lived that didn't deserve it, you did, I do. Jesus did it in our place. What that means for us, friends, is he knows shame. We can bring him our shame. Bring him that event. Bring him who you are. Bring him whatever is causing you to feel embarrassed and unacceptable. Bring your shame to Jesus. Well, he not only knows it, he's made an end of it. The gospel tells us that in Christ, we're made acceptable. We're united to Jesus by faith, brothers and sisters. Therefore, made righteous. We are forgiven, free, and restored. Preach that to yourself. Take that shame. You make me feel unacceptable. My king has made me acceptable. So you shut your mouth when shame, tell shame that. Zip it. You don't have the final word in my life. Christ does. Back in our text, verse 44, she comes up behind Jesus, I love this, and touches just the fringe of his garment. She's like, if, if half the rumors are true about Jesus, if I can just get up there and, and touch the very corner of his scarf, it'll probably be enough to make me right. Jesus wouldn't fly for the secrecy, though. Who touched me? Someone touched me. This is one of my favorite, you know, Peter's often putting his foot in his mouth. He's got a lot of embarrassing moments, and unfortunately for him, they're written in Scripture for all of history. <laughs> but he's like, Jesus, what, what do you mean? You're literally being choked by people around you. Um, I could be wrong here, I don't know. I don't think Jesus was genuinely unsure of who touched him. I think he's doing it on purpose. I know it's her but I want to bring her front and center. Why? He wants to highlight her healing, but he wants to say, everybody look. Her shame is over. She can be touched. She can come to church. She can be in community. No more shame for this woman. Everybody get your eyes on her. 12 years undone in a moment. She's acceptable. Isn't Jesus cool? Now pause. Jairus. This whole thing, this whole time, Jesus, really? Come on. My daughter is dying. What are you doing? Can we please get a move on? I can envision him being a little frustrated here. If we're probably being honest with ourselves, we would too. Come on. We've got to hurry. Action, back to the story. Immediately the discharge of blood is ceased. She comes trembling toward him because in that day and age when she touches Jesus, her uncleanness would normally make him unclean. She's past her uncleanness. 
The reality that she's unacceptable onto someone else when she touches another man or woman. But Jesus isn't just anybody. Upon being touched by uncleanness, Jesus doesn't become unclean, but Jesus causes the uncleanness to become clean. Jesus encounters sin, it's forgiven. When he sees impurity, he makes it pure. When he sees embarrassment, he comforts. When he comes across shame, he covers it. Pain, healed. Unrighteous, made righteous. Discouragement, he encourages. Those who weep have their tears wiped away. When he sees death, he brings life. Brokenness, he puts back together. Friends, Jesus makes uncleanness clean. He makes those unworthy and untouchable acceptable. Jesus is the sin and death and shame reverser. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Made you well there is the word saved. Daughter, your faith has saved you. The original word for saved and salvation uh, deals more than just forgiveness of sin and rescue from judgment. It certainly means that. Rescue from sin and being delivered from judgment. It certainly means that, don't be mistaken, but salvation in biblical terms is broader to include wholeness, wellness. Jesus has begun restoration by bringing salvation or wholeness to the woman. The effects of the fall are being reversed. New creation is starting. All sad things being made untrue in Christ. And it just starts with small reversals of sickness and shame and death. Because Jesus isn't done yet. Act or scene three. A dead girl raised. Verses 49 to 56. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came to him. Arriving with the worst of news, right? Don't bother the teacher. Your daughter's dead. The servant who, or, or messenger here is unaware of Jesus' power over disease and death, right? Doesn't know what just happened, probably. But regardless, this is a shameful, or I'm sorry, painful event. A painful thing for Jairus. Get back in the story for me, with, with me for a moment. If we would have just hurried, Jesus, we could have made it. If you wouldn't have stopped with that woman, I'm glad you healed her, Jesus. Great, fine for her. My daughter's dead because we didn't pick up the pace. Whether or not he said that or at least is thinking, and I'm imagining tears in his eyes. What were you thinking? Jesus, you failed me. Jesus' words are words for us. Don't fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. He gets to the house. He's like, no, we're pressing on. I got stuff in store you can't even imagine, Jairus. I see your tears, but I am about to wipe them away. And my finger is the very finger of God. It's going to comfort your mourning. They arrive at the house. They have people mourning and crying and weeping, making a ruckus, probably family, friends, neighbors for sure. And they laugh at Jesus. Because Jesus says, she's sleeping. You guys can calm down. I'll be right back. I got this. They laugh. Now clearly Jesus does know she's dead. The text tells us that. 
Jesus is using the word sleep for death because death is not permanent for those in Christ. Death has nothing on Jesus. And he's likely portraying a reality, a theologian and commentator on Luke, his name was Leon Morris, he says this, quote, death to humans is no more than sleep to Jesus. Say, I'll be right back. Takes mom and dad and a couple of the close disciples up and he raises the girl. Reverses death. Friends, Jesus is bigger than sickness and shame and even death. Sickness, oh, that's small to Jesus. He has power and authority over that. Just the edge of his garment is enough. Shame, deep embarrassment, feelings of being unacceptable, Jesus covers it. You don't have to. We have no need to hide. Those who are in Christ by faith have no reason to be afraid of shame anymore. Jesus paid for it. Paul's opening line in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your identity, friend, if you're in Jesus, is now Jesus. He is your identity. We're united to him, and therefore what is true of him is true of us. We're righteous, accepted and acceptable because of his work. Death? Oh, Jesus can turn it to good. Because of his death and resurrection, in our place, Jesus punched death in the mouth. He said it's no longer an end for us. It is simply a door through which we walk to enter into everlasting rest, everlasting joy, eternal peace. And friends, when we see this, when we know Jesus and his power and his authority over sin, over shame, over disease, over, over even death, I hope it stirs in us a longing for future glory, a longing when our faith will be turned to sight and we're with Jesus and we get him. And I hope it instills in us now, presently, a trust in Jesus that cannot be shaken. He is strong, he is powerful, and he's kind. He says, come to me. So brothers and sisters, my friends of Castleton Community Church, come to Jesus. Whether the first time, maybe you're still kind of investigating the claims of Jesus. You've got to do something with his resurrection. You've got to do something with prophecy hundreds of years before to a T being fulfilled in him. Just to be intellectually honest. But you've got to do something with the, this beautiful Jesus. Come to Christ. Friends, maybe it's the thousandth, millionth time. Come to Jesus. Recognize him as healer, physician, shame coverer, death and serpent crusher, and as king. Jairus and the woman simply heard rumors. I've heard about him. And they thought he can help. He has the power. He has the answer. How much more ought that be our reasoning? Living on this side of the cross, seeing the whole story with much clearer lens. We ought to embody Jairus' faith. 
the woman's faith. Trusting in the Lord and entrusting ourselves to him. Jesus can help, friends. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Give him your hopes, your dreams, your doubts, your laments, your pain, your shame, your anxieties. Give him your life, your everything, because he's worth it and he can actually help. He died for you. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? He has power over sin, shame, disease, and sickness, friends. Come to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are kind. You are good. You're even more gracious and good and merciful than we realize right now. However good we imagine you to be, you're even better. However merciful we think of you now, you're even more gracious. Thank you, Jesus, for making me, who was once an enemy, your friend, for making us your enemies, bringing us near and giving us a seat at your table. Thank you for reversing the fall. I thank you that you are powerful. Holy Spirit, help us come to you, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, in faith, trusting you afresh. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen.